Welcome to We Are What We Buy with Dr. Michael Solomon. We'll take a deep dive to look at the patterns, habits, brands, and benefits that drive your customers to buy. The tips and concepts you'll hear on the program will have you standing head and shoulders above your competition. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Solomon. Welcome everyone to this week's show. You're listening to We Are What We Buy, and I'm your host, Dr. Michael Solomon. So this week, we're going to tackle an issue that is relevant to everybody who's listening. It's one of those transformational issues that's that's really changing the equation in, in a lot of ways in terms of how we think about consumer behavior and the things that we buy. And that issue is climate change and sustainability. So something that, that everybody's talking about, uh, some people... Some people don't maybe believe that it's happening or they don't believe that it's a problem, but certainly it's something everybody's aware of. So, you know, in the old days, climate change used to be an abstract, very distant threat. But every day the news is full of stories about hurricanes, floods, heat waves, fires all over the world. And it's happening here. Flooding in the southeast, fires in the west. Heat waves in Alaska, record heat in the east, droughts in the Midwest, and even storm of the century events happening every few years along the Gulf Coast. So people are waking up. We're seeing young people in particular striking and marching for more action on climate change. We're seeing protests against fracking and oil pipelines. And we're seeing local citizens become outraged when the government opens up land for exploration and drilling. So it's fascinating that we're observing regular people who are banding together in class action lawsuits, for example, against companies that are damaging the environment. The bottom line, people are realizing that climate change is already in their backyards. It's impacting the things they care about most. and Because sustainability is on the minds of consumers, it also needs to be on the minds of businesses. So this is a a hugely important topic, and and my first guest is super qualified to talk about this, and I'm really excited to have her on the show. She's a a friend and colleague of mine at St. Joseph's University. Uh, Dr. Diane Phillips is her name, and like me, she is a professor of marketing Um, at St. Joe's. She's also a guest professor at the Institute for Retail Management at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. And uh, Diane uh, is uh, is a researcher in the broad area of consumer psychology, and she is focused on applying those findings to real-life concerns, especially pertaining to sustainability. So she's been doing research on sustainability for more than 25 years, and she also teaches several classes on sustainability to both graduates and undergraduates. In addition, she is famous for taking students on international trips where they can learn more about sustainability. So Diane is a certified member of the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, which is an elite group of thought leaders who interpret the latest groundbreaking research on climate change for everyday people and organizations. Hi, Diane, and thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on your program today. How are you? I'm great, and I am eager to jump into this topic, which we hear about right and left, um, uh, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad, but there's there's certainly no denying that it's here. I don't think anyway, and that it's it's obviously affecting the way we we conduct our daily lives, but but certainly in the sense of marketing and the sense of the types of products that that are out there, um, you know, we know that consumers are are definitely waking up to the climate crisis, and so if we talk about the U.S., we have listeners from all over the world, but. When we talk about American consumers, for example, you know, are they are they waking up to this, or are they still in a state of de- denial? Do you think? <laughs> well, I think the good news is that there are a lot of people who are waking up. So it's definitely not something that everybody 
um, thinks about as the front and center issue. Um, it's not something that dictates what all Americans think about all the time by any stretch. However, the good news is that a good proportion of people really are. Um, a good proportion of American consumers are worried about the climate crisis and they're actually motivated to do something about it. So that's the good news. I mean, if you think about how big an industry this is, when you talk about sustainable products, this is a $135 billion industry. So there's a lot of people out there, and this is just in the U.S., there are a lot of Americans out there who are buying these kinds of products. Um, products that are organic or all natural, maybe different kinds of things that have energy saving options like a microwave or a coffee maker, something like that. Um, if you're, say for example, specifically thinking about um, the fast moving consumer goods market, FMCG market, just that is an $18 billion uh, industry in the US and it's growing. That's, that's the thing that makes me very optimistic about this as well. Year-on-year uh, -year growth is about 20% in this sector, um, and compare that to about 3 or 4% for the rest of the industry. So it's really pretty cool. We're at an exciting time for sure. Um, I uh, wanted to tell you something else that I found uh, just in preparation for this program. I was looking up some absolute numbers, and I found this one statistic from Nielsen that said that sales of sustainable uh, products that have sustainable attri attributes. So for example, not just food where you would have natural organic or GMO free or something like that, but maybe even a coffee maker or a microwave oven that's more energy efficient, uh, any of those kinds of things. When you're talking about those sustainable attributes, it makes up 22% of store sales. That's a big proportion of a retailer's uh, take, 22%. And um, so back to the consumer thing, I mean, one thing that we can also be encouraged about is, you know, if not all consumers are on board with buying sustainable products or living a sustainable lifestyle, we know that many consumers are going to be about to be those kinds of consumers. So people change. And uh, we've found uh, evidence that says that when people go through an important life change, like for example, getting married for the first time or having a first child. It's a time where they sit back and reassess the connections that they have with brands and the different products that they buy. And so example, when people buy their, when people have their first child, um, they're motivated to try different kinds of products like organic, all natural, chemical free, fragrance free, those kinds of things. And uh, you know, the first product, the entry product uh, in, in the research that I've done is, and uh, I don't know if this will be too surprising, but it's milk. The, the very first product, if somebody is going to jump into the sustainable space, it's milk. And after that, they try other dairy products and then they go on to meat. Yeah, I would have, I guess, I would have guessed uh, maybe organic vegetables or something like that. So no, oh, that's, yeah. uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, we, <laughs> we refer to that as, as an unfreezing period where people, you know, look around and they say, okay, it's time to make a change. And, and maybe, maybe it's going to be a sustainable change. Um, but, you know, let, let me ask you this. So, you know, I can remember about, uh, I'd say 12 to 15 years ago, I felt like, wow, there's really starting to be some mass market momentum building. People were starting to talk about climate change and, and green marketing and all that. And then we had something called the recession. And suddenly everybody had to worry about where their, you know, where their next dime was coming from. And, and the, uh, I think to a large extent, the bottom dropped out of the green market because people were not willing to pay what they thought would be a premium for sustainable products so they prioritize their wallets you know and now we're they tell us we're out of the recession some people don't believe it but um, you know what what do you think are people willing to are are they willing to to walk the walk you know are they willing to if necessary pay extra for products that are more environmentally friendly or or is that a straw man i mean are these products more expensive because that's the that's the myth right that's the the story yeah. People say, yeah, but they cost a lot more. So what's the deal there? Is that, is that true? I think, um, first of all, I'd want to say that I wouldn't say the bottom dropped out of the sustainable sector. I would say it just sort of got put on pause. I think of the people there, when you think about the kinds of connections that people make 
when they buy sustainable products. It's so highly connected and tied to the, to the values that they have that those values didn't go away, but maybe they got put on pause just a little bit. Maybe people made other kinds of decisions in their own lives um, and maybe they didn't purchase, you know, the most sustainable products, um, but they still try to enact those values in other ways to, to maintain their values and enact those values. So I would, I would say that as far as um, being put on pause or, or, or the bottom dropping out, but going more specifically to your question about um, the price of sustainable products, are they really more expensive? Well, definitely they used to be. Um, the great thing is that consumers right now, however, don't need to make a choice between buying a green product and paying more money and then buying a, or buying a green product, a non-green product, sorry, and paying less money. And there are really many sustainable products that are actually really, really quite affordable. For example, um, fruits and vegetables that are, are local and are in season are um, a whole lot cheaper in many ways than the alternatives that are shipped from great distance. And I mean, some people obviously are, are, are really up on this stuff. You, I know that you've been following a sustainable lifestyle for many years, uh, but, but many people are not. So we have a stereotype with, you know, of what we call a tree hugger, you know, somebody <laughs> who is into sustainability and I don't know, maybe they wear Birkenstocks a lot and stuff like that. Um, how outmoded is that stereotype? You know, who is, who is the sustainable consumer today? <laughs> uh, well, you can definitely have your Birkenstock tree huggers in there as well, but, um, there, there's a group of consumers called the Lojas consumers. Um, and, and this is a, a term that a lot of, um, people around in the industry, they think about LOHA. So LOHA stands for, it's L-O-H-A-S. LOHA stands for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. So there's a definite segment of people, and some estimates say that it's as high as 25% of American consumers are LOHA consumers. These are the people who really get it. And what's, what's kind of cool about this particular group is, um, they, they go across all different kinds of demographics, so you can't describe them by age. You can't describe them by income, ethnicity, parts of the country that they live in, or anything like that. But what you can describe them as is people who are really understanding of the issues of sustainability and the impacts that their consumption choices have. And, and, and low-cost consumers, we've found that you know, they're really, really loyal to the brands that have the same values that they do. Um, they're, they're interested in authenticity, and, and they're really skeptical about slick marketing campaigns or strategies or things like that. I mean, another thing about Lojas is that they're willing to pay more money uh, for uh, the right products and the right brands. And, uh, you know, they're, they're really generally, as, as a general thing, they're, very, they're, they're generally better educated but they're really, really better educated when it comes to issues of sustainability. They understand, you know, the organic. In the U.S., LOHAS are those kinds of people. They, they know about the implications for the environment, about workers' rights, sourcing, distribution, a whole host of things. I mean, I've talked to companies who, um, you know, they, they sit around a conference table, they're trying to make a decision about something, and they say, well, what would LOHAS say about this? Or what would, how, would, how would LOHAS react to this? So, um, so companies who are transparent and make that information available for the people who are looking for it, uh, they will definitely appeal to those low-cost consumers. So let me ask you one final question, and if you can give me a really quick answer, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but maybe I will. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know that I do a lot of research on fashion, uh, and when I talk to young people, you know, they love to talk about sustainability as being important. Um, is this is this groundswell of interest in sustainability just a fad, or this time do you think it's here to stay? I wholeheartedly believe that it's here to stay. <laughs> um, we're going to see a lot more um, effects on the on the news and in our everyday lives uh, of climate change. So it's not something that's going to be easy to ignore anymore. And I think that young people today, you know, if you're talking about you know our students. 
um, and, and people who sort of are connected and, and very uh, into uh, social media, they get it. They talk. They understand. And um, specifically with fashion, they understand some of the implications. And um, I, I do believe that, that retailers who sell fast fashion kinds of uh, product or products and are in that space they're going to have to come up with some options that uh, appeal to those kinds of consumers. I mean, millennials are way more into this topic than say, for example, baby boomers. And uh, so I think that that makes me feel optimistic about the future for sure. Great. Well, Diane, thanks so much. You've inspired me to go into my closet and dig out my Birkenstocks. Uh, <laughs> I really, uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show and I'll see you back at the ranch. Okay. Thanks a lot, Mike. Wow. So when you hear some of those numbers about the market size for sustainable products, you, you realize that the expression doing well by doing good is, is more than just a cliche. Uh, it's time to take that seriously. You're listening to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon. We're going to take a break and come back to learn more about the value of sustainability. Be sure to follow me at, at Mike Solo on Twitter or Email me at michael at michaelsolomon.com with any thoughts or comments. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, and today we're talking about probably one of the most crucial aspects of marketing and branding that you can find. And that is how the brand relates to the, the whole sustainability movement. Does the brand give back to the environment or does the brand hurt the environment? And uh, how do people think about that? So, uh, so my guest now is a, is a real authority on this subject. Uh, his name is Tyler Lamott. And he has worked with, uh, with several very well-known brands uh, who really make a, a strong cultural footprint, uh, a strong environmental footprint, uh, such as Patagonia, Apple, and Adidas. And um, he is currently the chief brand officer at the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort and trying to uh, create a positive lasting change at this big mountain destination, which is a, a family-owned business that he'll tell us a little bit about. And it's all about uh, translating some very important and, and deeply held values into an overall positive experience for, uh, I'm sure, for employees, but uh, certainly for customers or visitors who, who go there. So 
Uh, Tyler's uh, been involved with the conservation movement for, for many years. He's served on industry boards such as the Conservation Alliance and Snow Sports Industries of America. Um, he has a lifelong passion for the outdoors and for product sustainability. And uh, he currently lives with his wife and his Bernese Mountain Dog in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. So, Tyler, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. And um, why don't we start uh, by focusing a little bit on your current role, and then maybe we can go back into your past a bit to talk about some of your experience more broadly with the issue of sustainability. So if you would, just just give us a brief commercial about uh, what you're doing now at Jackson Hole, please. Sure. Happy to do so. So I'm relatively new to Jackson Hole. I've been here for now just about six months, and we're gearing up for winter. Obviously, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort is a big ski and snow sports destination in the wintertime. And we do have a summer business as well, mountain biking, hiking, and climbing, et cetera, with incredible proximity to some of our most spectacular national parks, whether it be Grand Teton National Park and, of course, Yellowstone National Park, all really in our, in our purview, uh, immediately really right out the door in our surrounding area. So it makes it pretty unique. Uh, another unique aspect and what really drew me to coming to work at Jackson is, you know, a lot of my career I've been really focused on building products that enable really spectacular experiences in the outdoors, whether it's through snow sports or outdoor sports or in the footwear or action sports realms. So creating products for experiences has given me the ultimate knowledge to shift gears a little bit and come to Jackson where the actual experience is the product. And that's a very fun transformation coming from understanding the consumer product process and approach and extending that learning of the consumer and insights and behavior into how they use those products in real time in a destination like Jackson. One of the other things that really drew me to coming to this role was the fact that the mountain is independent in a realm of uh, ski area, ski industry consolidation, which we see happening all around us. Uh, Jackson Hole Mountain Resort is owned by a family and run by a family. And what I really like about that is it's not beholden to uh, private equity or obviously any sort of publicly traded um, element or part of a larger conglomerate. We really truly control our destiny. We live by our values and every day we integrate our purpose into what we do day in and day out because we have the ability to do so. And I think that makes it really unique and makes us a standalone. Um, and that's really what my gravitation has been throughout my career to a lot of different brands, that pull of of independence and really connected to family and putting purpose over profit is something that really attracts me in business today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you make an interesting point here before we dive into some of your past experiences, you know, you're, you're talking about this notion of, you know, you're, you're now, you're now about selling an experience rather than a product. Of course, all products really provide us with an experience, but uh, you know, I, I think we're seeing a real mind shift now for a lot of people who are starting to understand that even experiences that, you know, that seem like they are very pristine and at one with nature and so on, uh, even they can exact a toll on the environment. So we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of concern about the, for example, the carbon footprint of people who are, let's say I want to fly from my place in Philadelphia to Jackson Hole uh, to do some wholesome skiing. Well, I'm going to, you know, the carbon footprint, that is going to be pretty big to just buy that plane ticket, you know? So how does that fit into, you know, you're obviously in, in a, in a place right now that is, that is all about nature and yet people are using that nature, right. For their own purposes. So, you know, how do you think about that in terms of structuring an experience that will be positive for visitors, but also for the mountain and the, and the area? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. And it's also timely based off of some recent work that we've uh, just converted into. So uh, last month, we were really excited to announce that Jackson Hole Mountain Resort has shifted all of its energy to 100% renewable wind power. And so, for instance, you know, basically running our entire operation, that'd be our lifts, 
uh, on-mountain restaurants, facilities, to corporate offices, uh, maintenance, etc. Really, our entire fleet of everything that we do now runs on 100% renewable wind. And it's not offsets, it's not credits, it's actually single-source uh, wind power that's coming to us uh, from our local utility. And that's a big deal for us. In, in the valley and obviously in the state of Wyoming, which you know has a strong legacy and history in, in the realm of, of extraction, oil and gas, and to be able to lead by example here by switching over to wind within our, our local economy and showing what's possible, not only for our businesses, but also inspiring other businesses to take action and make that choice because it's absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, so that's what we're doing on our end as well as other things to kind of control the controllables and lead by example. And then we definitely encourage our guests to do the same. Um, for instance, public transportation. You know, we are in a clearly a destination resort, and we have a finite amount of roadway infrastructure and parking to to get here. And as people may fly in immediately when they land, you know, there's opportunities for them to take public transportation to and from the mountain or stay in town in Jackson. And that's something that we very much encourage. And we have a robust network and we work very closely with our local transportation group, uh, specifically within the local bus system, how to get people to and fro and really try to educate them that that's the best way to get to our mountain and experience that. And of course, that lowers their carbon footprint, that lowers congestion and lowers uh, pollution in the valley. Yeah, so it's, you know, the, the fact that most people uh, today even understand what a carbon footprint is, you know, that that's changed a lot, I think, from, say, five years ago, and that may have been a, you know, kind of a strange term to hear, and yet it's familiar to us today, and, you know, and more broadly, so, you know, you, you used a phrase that we, we're seeing a lot, and that is a values-led business strategy, so... Um, you know, how, how important is that? Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by a values-led business strategy and, and why it's important for brands to have that kind of uh, focus today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one, I mean, because, you know, obviously we see specifically, you know, whether it's Gen, Gen Y, Gen Z, um, younger generation, really caring a lot more about that transparency in terms of, you know, the open honesty that businesses have in terms of how they're conducting themselves, not just only as a company, but also within their products. And so that's from the outside looking in from the guest lens, but also from the inside, you know, creating values in terms of how we operate as a company. So essentially outlining what are our uncompromising truths and guiding principles that articulate what we stand for and that are also connected to our brand purpose and they're also the primary driving force behind our business behaviors and decisions that we make. So they have to align with our values that we agree upon as a set. And that really informs everything that we do. And it also, it really describes our desired culture as a company. Yeah, so clearly, you know, you guys, you guys are not just talking the talk, you're walking the walk. Um, do you, do you think that's the norm today? I mean, we're hearing so much about this. Um, you know, how much of it is just is just hype or or do you see a genuine transformation in terms of the way we do business in this country? I think there's a, a definitely a transformation that's happening. Uh, you know, people want to be informed. They're looking under the hood to, you know, peel away the layers to really understand what a brand is about because they have choices. And that's why, you know, it's important to have strong positioning. It's important to have a strong purpose. You have to stand for something that you are making a difference within your organization and companies because companies also have a lot of power uh, to make vital decisions. And that's whether working with local or state or national government agencies as it relates to having influence and having, you know, we've proven that, you know, being a business for good is good for business. And I know that's a little cliche and we hear that all the time, but it is true that there is this groundswell that's happening. And, you know, obviously it worked at Patagonia for many years and, you know, they've basically set the standard in terms of other companies to follow and lead and rec recognize that, you know, there's a, there's a market share play there in terms of people aligning with their values, that that's a proven concept that people can really get behind and really embrace because that brand, it becomes also part of their own unique 
identity and people align with those brands that align with their values. And so we've seen that happen uh, over time, which is great. And we see what happened when that doesn't necessarily align, where people choose uh, price over quality and quality trumps price as we know always. But sometimes, you know, that if I look at the fast, fast, the fast fashion industry, which is very much changing and looking at, you know, how they're trying to drive new behaviors and learnings because the customer is looking for something else now and they want something with a little bit more meaning and purpose because they recognize that the impact on the planet and that industry has actually been very difficult. And so it's been great because it's forcing new behavior models and those corporations to think differently about how they need to conduct their business because the tastes, the needs, the aspirations, and also the filters that those customers place on those brands is different than it was even, you know, five or 10 years ago. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned Patagonia, of course, that is an exemplar for a lot of people when we think of a company that's very sustainably oriented. Um, I know that you, um, that you did work there. You, you did some great things there. So, you know, uh, as we reach the end here, could, do you think you could share with the listeners a quick example of something you did uh, concretely at Patagonia that really helped to contribute to that reputation that they have? Yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it, it really comes down to, you know, one, the, if you look at Patagonia from a lens standpoint would be uh, the most sustainable product is the one that lasts the longest. That's a, that's a great filter to put on that where you go into quality. So put quality first, but recognizing that you can integrate quality and sustainability at the same time that's really when you get uh, part of the Holy Grail, but when you, you do quality, sustainability, advocacy, and purpose, and also can drive cultural transformation and change, that's when you have just a really powerful and enduring brand. So, for instance, one of the things that we did uh, at Patagonia, where we worked very closely with um, the Gore-Tex brand and built that relationship over time when I was there. But there was a long hiatus when Patagonia did not work with Gore-Tex. And when we reintegrated Gore-Tex back into the brand, it wasn't just to use Gore-Tex again in our technical outerwear. It was to partner with Gore-Tex on developing textiles around the most sustainable attributes that they could create or maybe had yet to create uh, from an innovation pipeline standpoint to do 100% recycled face fabrics or um, their backer fabrics or their taping. So really trying to work together to align on a brand ethos to propel both brands forward uh, is a great mantra in terms of for how Patagonia has been operating as it relates to supply chain, um, whether it be redefining uh, standards around down insulation or uh, natural fibers, merino wool, et cetera coming out with not just choosing and selecting a supply chain, but defining and redefining the whole industry in terms of what it means to set high standards around sustainability that the entire industry can adopt uh, across a broader spectrum is a far more noble pursuit than just trying to covet one's own small innovation to extend that IP and allow everyone to really change the world for good is something that Patagonia does all the time. And you've got to give them just tons of respect for continuing to push that forward because it's hard work, especially when you're thinking about life cycle analysis and sourcing and uh, supply chain and logistics, as well as end use consumer experience, quality, durability, and performance. So really looking at the whole spectrum of the supply chain, changing the industry at the same time, it's just, that's a wonderful thing that they do. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, you know, I think your experience proves that, uh, that you can do well by doing good. So, you know, thanks so much for joining us and, you know, keep fighting the good fight out there in beautiful Wyoming. <laughs> that's great. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it. You're listening to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon. After the break, we talk with an industry leader in the sustainability movement. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. 
He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. Welcome back to We Are What We Buy. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon. And this week we're talking about an incredibly important topic, which is green marketing and sustainability and the ways that companies can have a positive impact on the environment instead of contributing to the, uh, to the erosion of the environment. Uh, my next guest is really at the forefront of all of those efforts, and, and it's a real pleasure and honor to have him on the show. His name is Tom Zaki, and he's a founder and CEO of TerraCycle which is a global leader in the collection and repurposing of complex waste streams. TerraCycle operates in 21 countries, working with some of the world's largest brands, retailers, and manufacturers to create national platforms to recycle products and packaging that currently go to landfill or incineration. And TerraCycle is also the lead company in a new circular shopping platform called Loop that enables consumers to purchase products in durable, reusable packaging. Tom has written several books. Uh, my favorite title of the books he's written is Make Garbage Great. So, Tom, welcome to the show so we can make garbage great again. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Why don't we start, If I, I gave a very brief description of what TerraCycle does, but I know it's much more complicated than that. Can you just share with us uh, the, the vision of TerraCycle and how you accomplish that? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, TerraCycle is a mission-driven organization, and our purpose uh, is one, one simple thing, which is to eliminate the idea of waste. Uh, but we do everything a garbage company doesn't. So today, across uh, 21 countries around the world, uh, we implement three different practices. Um, the first, which is our first division, uh, operating under the TerraCycle brand, is about how do we collect and recycle that which today is not recyclable, from dirty diapers to cigarette butts, from flexible food packaging to toothbrushes. Then our uh, second division focuses not on making things recyclable, but making them from recycled material. So uh, we uh, work on uh, uh, putting everything from ocean plastic to festival waste into uh, consumer products. And then our third division operates under the Loop brand, uh, which is all about how do we solve waste at the root cause, uh, which we believe is using things once, and shift the world's you know, biggest uh, and most famous products at the world's most important retailers from single-use uh, products and packaging that you own in the end to multi-use uh, or reusable uh, products and packaging that you simply borrow. And uh, that's what the Loop platform uh, is all about. But, uh, but let, let's start with the, the general issue of, of how consumers are involved in all this. You know, the, the title of this program is We Are What We Buy, but unfortunately, I guess we're also, uh, we can say we also are what we throw away. You can have the most efficient platform in the world, but I guess if people don't cooperate, it probably won't work too well. So, uh, you know, are you, are you seeing a change uh, at, as people, increasingly the man or woman on the street is becoming more 
sensitized to issues of sustainability and everything that goes with that. Are, are, you seeing, are you seeing a groundswell of interest here, or is it something that's always been there, or how would you characterize it now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been running TerraCycle for, gosh, uh, over 15 years now. So, you know, I have a little bit of breadth of time on this. And I would say during that time, um, garbage has always been seen as a problem, right? I've never met a human being uh, uh, who says, you know, garbage is good or, you know, there isn't a garbage problem. And I, I, I mention that because it may seem sort of absurd because I have met people who say climate change doesn't exist uh, or is not a problem. So the lucky thing from an environmental standpoint is people always have agreed that garbage is an issue. What's been really interesting, you know, to echo your point, over the past really 24 months, garbage has moved from being a problem uh, to a crisis. So it's really elevated in the consumer uh, sort of mind as a, as a, as an issue. Uh, and I th think that all came about because of, uh, you know, sort of the, the really clear emotional uh, understanding of what ocean plastic is all about and seeing photos of, you know, uh, the belly of a dead, uh, you know, whale or fish filled with plastic or a bird all the way up to, you know, to a straw stuck up a turtle's nose. You know, that really captured, you know, the consumer imagination and people have held on to it. And what, what, why it's moved to a crisis is that sort of consumer uproar has, has led to different buying patterns. Uh, you know, you, you know, like you said, you know, we are what we buy. I actually love that, love that line because, um, you know, we vote for the future we want every day with what we purchase. And, you know, so we're seeing it play there and we're seeing lawmakers starting to galvanize on that consumer sentiment by, you know, banning the straw, banning plastic bags and, you know, putting in even more uh, ambitious laws that prevent the idea of waste uh, and certain products from existing. Yeah, so we, you know, it's an interesting psychological problem because I, I guess when we throw things away, we throw them away from our consciousness, but maybe we're reaching the point where there's no longer in a way to, to put them. I guess historically here in the U.S., we, we've shipped a lot of our problems overseas and maybe out of sight, out of mind. Is that, is that starting to change as well? Are we running out of places to put it? And that's why people are much more aware of it today? Well, so it's interesting, you know, yes, technically, um, uh, many countries who used to import our waste, like China and other countries in uh, Southeast Asia, have now stopped uh, by law the importation. Uh, you can call it the green fence or the green sword in the Chinese market, but other markets have started doing the same thing. Now, important that I think this is a little bit mischaracterized in the media. Uh, you know, people have characterized it as, you know, stopping the idea of dumping waste abroad. But really what was happening is low value plastics, plastics that recyclers in the US weren't interested in, were being purchased by Chinese uh, manufacturers who were using those plastics to make products. And it's very simple to understand why, because, you know, someone had to buy that material and spend money shipping it from, you know, say the US or Western Europe or wherever to China. And no one would do that if the waste was, uh, you know, was not usable. The unusable waste or, you know, the waste that uh, uh, wouldn't be recycled, you know, is ending up in our landfills, of which we have huge supply, or if you're in Europe, our incinerators. So what that effect of uh, these countries, you know, stopping the importation has done is really hurt the business of traditional recyclers because let's say half or two-thirds of their entire demand has gone away um, leaving behind only the materials that local companies have appetite for. So obviously, I guess necessity is the mother of invention, and uh, that's a good thing, I suppose. So we have to be more creative about finding someplace to put all this stuff and have creative uses from it. So uh, you, you, you alluded to something that I, I'd like to come back to, and that is that you, you briefly mentioned that uh, that one of the biggest issues or problems is, is this notion that we use something once and then throw it away. And we're, we're starting to see, you know, we don't usually equate garbage with, let's say, fashion. But, for example, in the fashion industry, which is one of the largest polluters, we're starting to see a, a, a sea change in terms of consumers' attitudes where suddenly it's no longer the best thing to buy a new dress or pair of pants, but rather it's a virtue to to buy vintage stuff or to, you know, to, to buy used clothing. Is, is, is that a change that you're seeing in, in the everyday consumer, a, a greater willingness to reuse things and, and valuing things that, that have been used more often? Yeah, I, this is a really interesting thing you state. So just to take a big backdrop and to reinforce what you're saying, the, um, the, if you think about the hierarchy of waste or what's the worst thing to do with waste to the very best thing, 
you know, uh, it's taking you on that journey. You know, the worst is uh, littering, then landfilling, then incinerating, uh, then recycling, then reusing, and then actually not buying whatsoever, you know, or you could call that reduce. Um, uh, would be a little bit more, uh, you know, sort of academic terminology for it. And we are seeing a huge interest in first, you know, uh, shoppers moving from non-recyclable to recyclable packaging. Uh, uh, we see that really, you know, in a big way across multiple industries and multiple countries. And we're seeing reuse come out aspirationally. It's not quite mainstream yet, um, but it's really moving in that direction. And reuse has uh, many facets. It has... Uh, you know, like what Loop does, which is uh, a we refill for you platform. So it feels disposable, but acts reusable. But it also has derivatives of other companies where you can buy concentrate, uh, you know, product, whether it's uh, tablets of window cleaner or concentrate laundry detergent and dilute at home. Uh, it has the option of buying bulk and filling at home or refill stations. So we're seeing more and more of that come. Uh, but it's, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before it becomes truly, truly mainstream. Um, the most important thing, though, which is I think what, you know, the average person out there struggles with the most is the idea of how do we reduce our consumption and just simply buy less? Because that is really, you know, if you think about any environmental issue you know, at all, uh, it all stems from the idea of purchasing something. The act of buying forces something to be created and the mining, the farming, you know, the, uh, uh, the extraction process is what really hurts the planet and not just in a waste way, you know, global warming, species reduction, all those things are linked to that aspect. And that's, I think, what is the biggest and most important thing to do, but also what we're struggling with the most to get to as consumers because we really love the idea of buying stuff. We're addicted to it. Uh, and, and so it really is a difference in mindset, right? When you have, you know, you have presidents who say, well, when, when things get bad or there's terrorism or whatever, go out and buy something. And that's, that's the way you'll cheer yourself up. I mean, that's, that's really central to, at least in a capitalist uh, system, it's considered a virtue. And we talk about stimulating the economy when we go shopping. So how do you, how do you punch back uh, against that kind of argument when when you're talking about at least slowing the the creation of new products and reusing old ones well it's you know so i don't think this has to be in contrast with capitalism right um, so for example how can you maintain the same amount of spending but buy less you can shift spending from buying objects to buying services, you know, from shifting ownership uh, away from the consumer, I think is a really important aspect. And you can maintain spend, even increase it net net uh, by doing that. Um, you could also buy things that are uh, uh, built with durability and long lasting in mind that in fact, purchasing total amount of purchasing may increase. So I wouldn't want to paint the picture that the idea of reduce is, is linked directly to reducing the economy. I think the idea of reduce while maintaining a strong economy, is just shifting how we buy things and what it is that we buy. I think it's fair to say that the concept of ownership in general is, is really transforming. You know, you have people who aren't buying cars anymore. They're just taking an Uber. You have uh, diminished interest in buying homes. Is, is that a more general trend that you're plugging into that, that you think will encourage the usage of platforms like Loop? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Loop, for example, tries to do what you know Airbnb did in hotels or Uber did in cars, which is shift the concept of asset ownership. So if you take a consumer product, uh, let's just say, I mean, pick whatever, let's say a laundry detergent, you know, you have your Tide bond. Today, when you go to your favorite retailer, let's say, you know, Kroger and buy your Tide bottle, then you are buying not just the content, the detergent, but you're also paying for the full price of that bottle which is ironic because the moment it's empty, you don't want to keep it. And yet 99% of what we buy falls into the category of we don't want to own it as soon as it's empty, which is really weird. In Loop, what we do is we shift ownership back to the manufacturer. So that Tide bottle um, is owned by the manufacturer in the end, and that's accomplished with a deposit system. So when you buy your Tide, now say at Kroger, you pay for the content about the same, but then you pay a deposit on the durable package which you get back once you return it, and then it goes back to, uh, in this case, PNG, you know, uh, and they refill it. Now, the benefit of shifting ownership is, 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 is a multitude. The benefit to the consumer is they move away from low-quality disposable packaging to incredibly high-quality 
uh, durable packaging. So the Tide bottle uh, in loop is stainless steel, which is beautiful and just significantly more luxurious than a uh, you know than the current HDPE bottle. And there's tons of examples like that. But also then to uh, the manufacturer, they're able to innovate in ways they weren't able to innovate before because when packaging becomes an asset, they can invest much more into it on a per unit basis than packaging being owned by the consumer where they have to make it as absolutely cheap as possible. Well, that really is in, ingenious. And uh, what, what types of product categories are you working with there uh, in addition to, say, household products? Sure. So I answer this concretely and then academically. So concretely, we're working right now in packaged food, packaged beverage, uh, home care products, which is like your window cleaner to your laundry detergent to uh, personal care, which is like your toothpaste to your shampoo. Those are the areas that, uh, and then there's peripheral examples, like we, we have a motor oil with Shell and some other examples. But think, you know, that category of FMCG, which is fast moving consumer goods, with a focus on, on, on those four categories. Now, academically, the things that are prone to a reuse model in pack in product are things that have sort of three criteria. The first criteria is I don't want to own it after a very short period of time. So any sort of packaging falls into that quite well. Um, the second is uh, there is an opportunity to improve design. You know, moving your Haagen-Dazs ice cream container from being coated paper to say double wall stainless steel, which is what it is in loop, is a massive, massive uh, improvement. And then the third is an odd one. It's a psychology uh, piece, which is people have a problem with the garbage. You know, so certain types of waste streams, people are more up in arms than others, like dirty diapers, cigarette butts, coffee capsules. Uh, consumers and individuals are much more angry about than other waste streams. So where there's a design improvement, where you don't want to own it in the end, and where it, there is uh, frustration or anger around a waste stream, those things are the best indicators for a product being uh, uh, applicable to a reuse uh, uh, shift. Oh, that's, fa that's fabulous. And uh, it's all the time we have. But Tom, I I'd like to personally thank you for helping to make this a cleaner world. And I certainly wish you that the best with this new platform. I'm going to be looking for it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to uh, chat with you today. And that's our show for today. All about doing well by doing good. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon. This is We Are What We Buy. Please drop me a line at michael at michaelsolomon.com to tell me what you think. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to We Are What We Buy. Please join your host, Dr. Michael Solomon, again next Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a winning week. 